You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, in John 13, Jesus continues to minister to his disciples. He's preparing them and equipping them for a work beyond what they could see. You know, when you read the book of Acts, you understand that in order to do the things that these men did, there would need to be, yes, the filling of the Spirit of God, but also deep equipping, you know, preparation. I I think of the moment when Peter went to the house of Dorcas in uh, Acts chapter 9 and uh, prayed for her that she might be raised from the dead. And you just think about the way and the manner in which he did it as he put everyone out of the house and as he went in and prayed for her. And you just realize that this is not something that he would have done had it been for the training that Christ had given to him, the example that had been set. And it just strikes me that so often we're in such a hurry to go out and get the job done for Christ. When so often his method and desire is to slow us down and train us and teach us that we might then be sent into the world to be used for him. To do a strong work for Christ, there is a deep preparation required in the heart of God's men and women. Now what we saw last time at the beginning of John chapter 13 was Jesus preparing his disciples by washing their feet and giving them an example of radical service towards one another. And as I shared with you, the motivation for service that Christ was giving to them was the motivation, very simply, that he was the greatest of all time, the king of glory. And that as the king of glory, he was willing to serve them. And so none of them were above uh, serving each other. And so this motivation remains today. Uh, We are not motivated to serve because of the warm fuzzies that it will give to us, but we are motivated to serve because if Jesus was not above it, then of course, neither are we. Now, after saying all of these things and giving these lessons to his disciples, it says in verse 18, Jesus speaking, said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so Jesus begins to talk now about Judas begins to speak concerning Judas. And first he quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9. A a beautiful psalm, but a sad psalm in a lot of ways. And he quotes this uh, little section about the eating of the bread together. That he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And uh, speaking of, of this man, Judas. And he Did all of this, Jesus told them in verse 19, to prepare them ahead of time so that when it all came to pass, their faith would be built up and they would be able to endure. I love the ministry of Christ in preparing us for the things that are coming in our lives 
and building up our faith in advance so that we might be able to stand in that hour of difficulty and in that hour of trial. And so Jesus begins now to speak to these men concerning the betrayal that he was about to experience at the hands of Judas. And so now we move on into verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now this is an interesting moment in the life of Christ because it tells us in verse 21 that he was troubled in his spirit. And what he was troubled about is stated when it says that he testified truly, truly, which signifies a major statement. I say to you, one of you will betray me. The thing that was moving the heart of Jesus was that one of his disciples would betray him. Now, I think it's important to understand how deeply pained Christ was through this betrayal. An easy way to see this exemplified is by looking at the times or the moments in Jesus's life when it tells us that he was troubled in his spirit. You might remember back in John chapter 11 when Jesus appeared at the gravesite of Lazarus. He saw people weeping. He saw those that he loved mourning. And he saw this general brokenness in mankind. And it says that he began to weep, that he was troubled in his spirit, that he was hurt within his soul. Now we know in that text that Jesus wasn't sad because he missed Lazarus. No, in just a few moments he would resurrect Lazarus from the grave. And he knew that he would do that because he'd already told his disciples that this illness was for the glory of God. He knew the plan of God and his plan to resurrect Lazarus from the grave. No, he was broken because of the fallenness of mankind and because of the hurt and the pain and the agony and the death that sin had created in the world. Imagine yourself as the creator of something so good and pure and wonderful and watching that thing that was good and pure and wonderful defiled and broken by sin and rebellion and then visiting that pain as a man. It would just be heartbreaking. And so in that moment in John 11, the spirit of Christ was troubled. We also see that his spirit was troubled in John chapter 12. It tells us that after he spoke of his coming death and resurrection, his need to die on the cross, Jesus said, my hour has now come and my soul or my spirit is, is greatly troubled. And so once again, in thinking of his coming death, the, the spirit of Jesus is troubled. The other gospels tell us that in the garden of Gethsemane, his soul, his spirit was troubled. And we see it evidenced in the fact that as he prayed, sweat mixed with blood uh, proceeded from his forehead. It was a horrible uh, anxiety filled moment where his his soul was stressed and under pressure and so we see that uh, when the bible speaks of jesus being troubled in his spirit it is a greatly difficult moment in his life and here again we see that he is troubled in his spirit 
at the prospect of being betrayed by his friend. And I just moment uh, mention that for a moment today to you because I believe that so much of the pain uh, in this world is a direct result of the betrayal of those who should love us. It's as, it's as David said in Psalm 55. He, he wrote there in verse 12, he said, It's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. In other words, David, who was familiar with what betrayal felt like, he said, you know, if it was an enemy, if it was an adversary who was messing with me, if it was an enemy or adversary who was persecuting me, I could deal with that. It's expected from those quarters. But when it comes from a, a friend, a companion, an equal, someone who we used to take counsel together, someone who we used to walk together in the house of God. When it comes from that kind of person, it simply hurts. And what I wanted you to see, quite simply, is that Christ himself experienced that kind of pain for you and for me. You know, I mean, how many of us know what it's like to experience betrayal from someone who was close to us, someone who should have loved us. Whether it's a spouse or a parent, a child, an aunt or an uncle, a friend, a church leader, a church member. You know, so often that pain, when it comes, the kind of pain that comes when someone who should have loved us betrays us and hurts us, it is a deep kind of pain. It is a deep brand of hurt. And all I wanted you to see, I mean, I could talk at this moment about guarding your heart against uh, the seeds and roots of bitterness and all of that, but all I really wanted to mention at this point is that Jesus can identify with that kind of pain. He was the only innocent person, by the way, to ever be betrayed. And he experienced that for you and for me. You know, in the same way that Jesus could have been born in a palace, but yet chose to be born in a barn so as to identify with us, Jesus could have chosen to have had great relationships and friends, yet he allowed himself to experience the betrayal of someone who he loved, someone he cared for in Judas. And so he is able to identify with you and identify with me. Now the disciples, verse 22, looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now this, of course, has been mentioned by many, but obviously this tells us that Jesus was not the conspicuous candidate for betrayal. You know, it's not as if the disciples looked around and, and saw Judas with his, you know, black cloak uh, cast down over his eyes and a devious smile and red beady eyes and saw and thought to themselves, well, we've always wondered why Jesus selected this guy. He must be the betrayer. No, he blended right in with the group. 
And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now John, as we'll see in the coming chapters, was identifying himself when he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I just love that John personalized the love of Christ for himself. And so you here you have this scene where John is sitting next to Jesus at the meal and Peter, he wants to know who is this betrayer? The other gospels tell us that the disciples upon hearing of the coming betrayal and of Jesus's arrest, they told Jesus that they had two swords with which to defend themselves. Peter, in the Garden of Gethsemane, during Jesus' arrest, pulled one of those swords out and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus subsequently healed that ear and rebuked Peter. Uh, but uh, I think, in one sense, Peter was, after hearing of a betrayal, wanting to know who it was so that he could set the record straight and put down this uh, betrayer. And so he wants to know, but he doesn't want this to be a public thing. He wants to privately know who this person is. So he somehow during this meal, as everyone is eating, signals to John to ask Jesus. And so John, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread. Remember Psalm 41, verse 9, He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus said, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now what we see here is that in this meal, Jesus offers this bread to Judas, and this was the symbol of friendship. To offer this morsel to Judas would have been a sign of great friendship. And so he offers this morsel to Judas, and uh, Judas then has a decision. Will I take it? Will I eat it and will I follow through with this plan that I've committed to? And he takes it and eats it. And it says in verse 27 that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Ominous phrase. And it's important to note that within hours, this man would be dead. He'll betray Christ and he will go and commit suicide. And so... You see the ultimate plan of Satan. When he has full access to a human life, his purpose is always to destroy that human life. And so Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one, verse 28, at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night, uh, which of course is a simple time marker that John is giving to us, but also probably a little more than that in the sense that John has told us that Jesus came as the light of the world and his own did not receive him. 
of which Judas is uh, the closest picture. He did not receive the light of the world, went out to betray Jesus, and it was night. But none of the disciples knew what Jesus was trying to communicate or what Jesus was saying as he gave the morsel to Judas and said, what you are doing, do quickly. Uh, they thought that he was telling Judas perhaps to go buy some provisions for the feast or to go and give something to the poor. Uh, but they had no idea what was happening here. More than likely because this was all a secret conversation. You know, where Peter signals to John, John asks Jesus. Everyone around the table is talking and hanging out and, and the volume is rising and Jesus Privately to John tells him it's the one to whom I dip the mor morsel and hand it to him. He is the one and he takes it, dips it, hands it to Judas. And Judas is identified for John and Peter, but not the rest of the disciples. However, the other gospels tell us that upon announcing that one of them would betray uh, him, the disciples then asked each to a man, Lord, is it I? And when it came to Judas, he said, Lord, is it me? And Jesus said, it is as you have said. You have said it. So uh, in one sense, it should have been obvious to the disciples by this point. Now, when he had gone out, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once little children yet a little while I am with you you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews so now I also say to you where I am going you cannot come so Jesus immediately begins speaking of the cross that's why he said in verse 33 I'm with you a little while longer but I've said to the Jews before and now I say to you where I'm going you cannot come and I so appreciate that statement from Christ because uh, it helps us to understand the unique work that he accomplished on the cross. You know, in one sense, his death is a sacrificial death, uh, which is an example to you and to me on how to live life. In other words, his death was an exemplary death for you and I to take up our cross to deny ourselves and to follow after him, to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ and for others. But his death was so much more than an exemplary death. That's why he told his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come. He and he alone could die the substitutionary death on your behalf and on my behalf. And so Jesus tells them, look, this is something that I and I alone can accomplish. But before he says that, with the cross in his mind, Jesus announces that now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And you just think of that and you think of the Son of Man being glorified in this moment. Of course, this is accurate. You know, Jesus, uh, through the cross, he accomplished the greatest thing that any man in all of history has ever accomplished. And so through the cross, he would be glorified. But you also think of God's glory as well. He said, and God is glorified in him. Somehow through the cross, God would be glorified. And God is glorified through the cross. 
First of all, the power of God. You just think of it. That the schemes of the devil, the schemes of man, uh, could not overwhelm the plan of God to redeem the world. The power of God to redeem. That through death, he would win victory. Also, the justice of God. You remember when Moses uh, asked to see God's presence and God said, well, you can't see me and live, but I'll allow you to be in the cleft of the rock and I will cover the rock with my hand, pass by and remove my hand and you'll see the afterglow of my glory and I will pronounce my name to you. There are wonderful things that we see there in the name of God that he's gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But one thing that he says is, I will by no means clear the guilty. And we love that, actually. I mean, we, we might not naturally incline ourselves or to that portion of the name of God, but what you think about what it means, that he will by no means clear the guilty. And we love that. God is just. No one gets away with anything. We love that. Uh, and in the cross, we're seeing that no one got away with a thing. The price had to be paid. The Son of God had to die. The justice of God revealed in the cross. Also the holiness of God. The holiness of God in that he is so pure and holy and righteous. And there is no evil in him. That in order to even begin to have fellowship with you, in order to even begin to have fellowship with me, his son had to be slaughtered on our behalf. This speaks of the great and incredible holiness of God. You know, that in order to atone for our sins, in order to make us righteous like him, it wasn't a mere animal sacrifice or simple confession or prayer that we would offer. No, it was the brutal slaying of his son, the wrath of God, abiding upon his son, the holiness of God. But also the love of God is revealed in the cross. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God is glorified in the cross of Christ. Now after saying that, Jesus in verse 34 said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus gives to his disciples here a new commandment. And it's very simple. It's the commandment of love. Now, I think in our modern culture, it's very easy for this commandment of love to sound so trite, so bumper sticker-ish, so simple, overly simple. You know, as the Beatles sang, all you need is love. You know, and, and it, it just sounds so simple. You know, like the bumper sticker that says, abolish hate. I mean, it sounds so great, but really, what is this going to accomplish? But just think for a moment about the power of love. In the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, God gave his commandments regarding the way we treat one another. You know, you shall not murder, you shall not uh, commit adultery, 
Uh, you shall honor your father and your mother. And you think about what love does in these different contexts. What does love do in the realm of violent crime? What would love do if allowed to run free in the realm of family? What would love do if able to run free in the, in the realm of sexual activity? What would love do if allowed to run free in the, in the realm of greed? Uh, you know, what would love do in all of these different categories? And really, at the end of the day, you discover that if love were allowed to abound, then the second tablet would be fulfilled and the world would be a wonderful place. But here Jesus tells his disciples that they must love one another. And this gives us the hint as to what is new about this commandment. Because the commandment to love was not a new commandment. They'd asked Jesus, what is the greatest of the commandments? And he said to love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so love was not a new commandment, but, but as Jesus was establishing the church here with these disciples, to love one another was the new commandment. And we as people are to have a special love one for another in the body of Christ. You know, I'm a church kid. I grew up in the church. I, I, every Wednesday night was at church. Every Sunday morning was at church. I, along with my little sister, would, uh, you know, every single church service, we would be waiting and waiting and waiting for our parents to finish talking with people in the church, praying with people. After service was over, we would, and we finally got a ride home, we would uh, you know, go out to meals and have people over. I'm a church person. And I'm here to tell you that a love for the body of Christ is of utmost importance. It makes me cringe a little bit when people talk down on the body of Christ. It's far from a perfect organization, but it's more than an organization. It's an organism, a living, breathing thing that Christ has established, his bride. And we are to love one another like Christ loved, without prejudice, uh, without favoritism, sacrificially loving one another. Jesus said that this is the mark of discipleship. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We make so many other things the badge of discipleship, but Jesus said it is love. Now, verse 36, to wrap this up today, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And so Peter, he had heard Jesus say, Where I am going, you cannot come. And so he wants to know, Where are you going? And Jesus says, You can't follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter would be a disciple after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and he would follow in Christ's footsteps in dying a brutal death. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And unfortunately for Peter, this would be fulfilled because he had so trusted in his self, uh, a self-confidence that should not have been. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, 
please visit us at nateholdridge.com.